Taurati, please, to Psalm 93. We are continuing our summer series in the Psalms. And by way of quick recap, I want to remind you where we have been so far. We have decided that it would be good to take the summer and spend it in the Psalms. As I said to you, it helps because I know you guys are in and out a good bit in the summer. It's difficult because of vacations and other obligations that you have. And also, we feel as a church right now that as we are continuing to pursue collective discipleship, and by that I mean that we take following Christ really seriously here. We are, we are not here to play. We're here to enjoy God and one another, but we didn't come here to play. We came here to understand week by week that we are children of the living God, that he made us for his glory, that he has rescued us for his glory, and we owe him everything. And so we encourage one another through teaching and through fellowship and through other means to pursue Christ with all that we have and for all that we are worth. So we feel that as we pursue that kind of discipleship here, that we have to address every part of the human, head and heart, hands and body. And the Psalms are unique in their reach into our hearts. They correct the way that we think so that our hearts might change. That is to say, as our thinking is transformed, our hearts are transformed. The Psalms address every part of our hearts, every emotion, from joy and exultation to sorrow and despair. We began in Psalm 1 because it's really an introduction to the entire Psalter, which is a fancy way of speaking of the 150 Psalms. It points us to the reality and to the beauty and necessity, the indispensable hope that we find in the Word of God. We are encouraged in Psalm 1 to meditate on God's Word day and night. In doing so, we will be like trees planted by rivers of water that produce fruit in their seasons. Life is long. Life is hard. And the scriptures give us the ability to say that with full honesty and hope. Life is long and life is hard. And we cannot do this on our own. It is the great lie of the serpent in the garden that we can live independently. God in his great mercy has given us his word to direct our hearts back to him, that we might trust him and know him on the bright and sunny days and on the dark and dismal days. We have taken the first few weeks as we move beyond Psalm 1 to talk about how glorious and great our God is. We spent our first week after Psalm 1 in Psalm 8, which proclaims to us that our God is majestic, powerful, and high above all things, and yet he is mindful of us, and he has crowned us with glory and strength as his sons and daughters. Last week, we spent time in Psalm 67, which demonstrates to us that God, the majestic God, shines upon us. His favor is toward us. He smiles on us as a good and kind father. 
And he does that so that we might make his goodness known all around the world. That is to say, he has made us recipients of his glorious grace, that we might dispense that glorious grace like conduits all around us. And now today we will spend time in Psalm 93, which proclaims to us that our God controls all things. So moving beyond the introduction to the Psalter in Psalm 1, we have spent these first three weeks talking about our glorious God. And there's purpose and design behind that. Next week, we are going to spend a few weeks, beginning next week, talking about how we handle despair, sadness, depression, confusion, and the anger and distraught hearts that result from all of those things. After that, we will move on to what it looks like to be a happy people that exalt the exalted God. But all of that is foundational upon these irreplaceable truths, and that is that our God is glorious whenever we are happy and whenever we are sad. The 150 Psalms that God has preserved for us and His holy word have been given to us that we might praise Him whether we are happy or whether we are sad. And foundationally, above all, there exists a seminal truth, and that is that there is one God, and He is the glorious God over all, and we are His people. We must know this more than abstractly. Psalm 93 could be seen as an abstract psalm, something that just tells us some esoteric, that is to say, mysterious truth about God's control over all things. If you were to pin down most evangelical Christians and ask them if God is in control of all things, they would probably give you a summary answer of yes, If you were to ask them a couple of further questions, is he in control of the devil? They might hedge on that one. Is he in control of evil? They might not have an answer for that one. Is he in control of the bad things that happen to you? Then they might begin to argue with you. If you were to pin down a relatively well-taught, well-trained evangelical, they might be able to give you all the theologically correct answers to those questions and more if you press them. But we are looking for more than nominal Christianity, and we are looking, brothers and sisters, in our assembly for more than just theologically astute Christians. We are looking for Christians who know God well and love Him with all of their hearts. Psalm 93, which we will read together in just a moment, is to be more for us than just an abstract theological principle that we shelve somewhere so that we can give right answers on some sort of alleged quiz. Psalm 93 is for your heart, and it's for my heart. And this psalm proclaims to us in inescapable language, irreplaceable truth 
that our God is in control of everything. Let's read together. Psalm 93. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his word. The title of our God, the name of our God here in this psalm is the Lord. He is the covenant Lord of his people. But we know, and it's fitting on this day, that that Lord has become a father to us. We know that if we have put our faith, placed our faith in Jesus, his son. Jesus, who died as our substitute, who was buried and resurrected, conquering sin and death. If we have trusted his sacrifice and his conquering atonement, we have become sons and daughters of God. He is our covenant Lord and he is our Father. And it's fitting on such a day to speak of our Lord, our Father, in careful terms, in reflection, so that thinking is changed and so that our hearts are changed. I said to you a while ago, and I learned this over time, that Mother's Day and Father's Day have great juxtaposition in them. That is to say, for some they have great joy, and for others they are sorrowful. And for a lot of us, they're both all at the same time. Some of you had really great dads who pointed you to Jesus, who loved you imperfectly, but loved you well. They were tender, they repented in front of you, they worked hard, they loved your mom. Some of you were, were adopted by a father and know what it's like to have been chosen both by a heavenly father and an earthly father. There's something incredibly special about that. Others of you did not have such a relationship with your father, especially as you got older, reflecting backward, you can see this. Some of you were hurt by your fathers. Some of you lost your fathers at a young age or as an adult, and there's a hole in your heart today. If you are a father today, many of you are, most of you are, or perhaps a grandfather, and now it's gone on to another generation, you rejoice. You know, if you're being honest and can admit the truth, that you haven't been a perfect father but as God has been faithful to your family and you're watching your children grow now, though imperfectly, you are loving them well. I have said to you before that I have never been around a concentrated percentage of really good dads like in this church. And that's true. 
So I say to each of you today, as I, as I watch you raise your children, uh, for those of you who are a little older and have grown children, as we see the fruit of your labors over time, I couldn't be more proud of you. And God gets all the credit for that. But we have really good dads here, humble dads, dads who are not just humble but strong, and there's beauty in that. Others of you who long for children feel the the sting of loss and longing. And so in all of this, we feel good and we feel bad. We, We see joy and we see sorrow. Our Lord is not just the God who made all things, though. He is our Father. He's the perfect one. As we prayed earlier, when we see good in our earthly fathers, it's a reflection of the good in our heavenly Father. When we see lack in our earthly fathers or in our own longings for fatherhood, it creates within us a longing for the perfect one. What I want to say to you today is that your Father is perfectly good and perfectly mighty. And my concern is that as we consider such a God in this psalm, that these truths could just be seen as theologically mysterious and unhelpful. In our little camp of essentially reformed Christianity, where we believe deeply in the sovereignty of God, even though we don't use all that buzz language that often, we are supposed to, and in this theological camp, have a pretty high view of God. I am concerned, however, that very often this high view of God is nothing more than a theological principle. Psalm 93, though we do not know the author, was written not just to help the people of Israel to be more theologically astute, it was to enrich their hearts. The middle of this psalm, which we will talk about in just a moment, proclaims to us that life is hard. Metaphorically speaking of these mighty, strong, scary waters, we realize that life is tough and God is in control of all things. Israel needed to know that. Israel had learned through her history that they were weak. They were weak in their strength. They were weak in their ability. They were weak in their intellect. And they were weak in their resolve. And the psalmist knew that felt that, and in feeling that, wrote this down, to do more than inform the mind, but to encourage and sustain the heart, and not just his or her own, but the hearts of the collected people. And so I say to you today, beloved, I want your minds to be enriched with the truth The knowledge that God is in control of all things. But I want your hearts to be settled today. To know that whenever you feel strong, it's an illusion. Because only God is. And when you feel weak, that's an okay place to be. Because your Father, your Lord, is in control of everything. Let's talk about how to look at the psalm in three parts. First, he created and rules over all. 
verse 1 at the end, says to us, The world is established, it shall never be moved. Even in the end, when God puts down evil, this world will not be completely vaporized. It will be refashioned, and it will be our home planet for eternity. This world that is imperfect, we love nonetheless. There's a reason why we feel bodily rooted to this place. We will live eternally here in these recreated perfect bodies. This world is established, it shall never be moved. The trees that are mighty, lifting their hands to the heavens, rooted deeply in the soil, have been put there by God. The oceans that roar, causing humanity to tremble, only go so far because God controls them. He put the moon in its place to control their tides. He put this earth at the proper distance from the sun that we might have appropriate heat, but not too much. He gave us the changing of the seasons here in Ohio, half of which most of you don't like, to teach us about the cycles of death and rebirth and beauty and even the beauty of death longing for renewal. He provides oxygen through green plants. He created the variety of animals in which we can study and see his creative wisdom. And he made us to rule over all those things as his image bearers. This earth is beautiful, majestic, and a proclamation that our God who creates by the word of his mouth is wise and beautiful and full of power. But he didn't just make it and set it spinning. Every season that changes, God does that. Every bird that is fed, he does it. Everything good comes from his hand. Why? Because he's the king. He's the king over all things. And he is perfect in his majesty and in his strength. God existed before anything ever was made. And he will outlive all the things that we see refashioning all things that we might live with him for forever. From of old until the end, which there is no end, he will be the emperor, the controller, the majestic ruler of everything. And the wonder of this, putting all the truths of the scripture together, is this king of eternity is your father. Your good dads, or you good dads, are mere reflections of the perfect one. Your imperfect fathers, or you imperfect fathers, are a reminder in the longing for something perfect that there is a better one. We know it intuitively. Looking back on my childhood, 
I had a really strong dad. He wasn't physically imposing. He's shorter than me. Um, he didn't have gigantic muscles, although it seemed when I was a child he could lift anything. My dad could do anything. He could fix any car. Um, he could build anything. My dad was an incredible digger. And you might think I'm speaking metaphorically, but I'm not. I mean, literally, he was a great digger. We had an acre yard kind of out in the semi-country. And my dad grew up on a farm in Kentucky, but he became a pastor. And so he didn't have a farm to tend. So he thought that he would just dig up soil in his yard and move it to other parts of the yard. So when I was a child and he had free moments, which seemingly were few and far between, he would dig up parts of the yard and move it to other parts of the yard like where there were low spots. He would put in his own like homemade, home-brewed irrigation systems, which never quite worked perfectly. Um, he built his own big garage, which turned into basically a barn in our backyard. Uh, my, my dad could, could do anything. I, I have visions of, of my father sitting behind our Airstream trailer every summer before we would go on vacation, fixing things. He held together this late 1960s Airstream trailer for years so we could go take vacations together. He knew all the, the trees in the forest. Every Sunday afternoon, we would go, he would, he would say to me, do you want to go WW? My dad had all these strange cliches he still uses to this day. And WW meant woods walking. And so our little clumber spaniel, who was great at killing groundhogs and all that kind of stuff, he would follow us and we would go in the woods around our house and he would point out to me sycamores and beech trees and oak trees and maple trees and teach me about vegetation on the ground and the birds. He bought me a bird book when I was young. And every time we would find a new bird, we would put a little date next to it. My dad, my dad just knew everything. My dad was strong. But as I've gotten older, I realized just how imperfect he was, just like I as a father am imperfect. How though he was strong, he wasn't perfectly strong. He couldn't perfectly keep my heart from aching. He couldn't perfectly undo my wrongs or his own. The strength of a good dad who loved me and cared for me was, was imperfect. There, was, there were limitations to it. As you grow older and see your father, whether he was a good one or a bad one, you recognize that there's limitation there. And that creates within you, if you have quiet moments and have eyes to see, a longing for something better. Because at the end of the day, though fathers are good gifts from God, they are to be mirrors to which we look to the one true God that they reflect, the one who has no limitations, the one who knows our limitations and can take care of us. As I've already said, I'm concerned that the truths proclaimed to us in these first two verses can be mere theological principles to us. Which brings us to the next point. He is in control of every storm we face. How do we know that God's sovereignty his absolute control over all things, the one who is robed in majesty and strength, the one who made the world that will never be moved, the one who is king from everlasting to everlasting. How do we know that those truths, which the word clearly proclaims, are more to us than just theological principle? We know it 
when the storms come. When the storms come, if we are shaken to our core, and instead of turning to Him reflexively, we'll come back to that in just a moment, instead of turning to Him reflexively, if we turn inward, looking to ways that we can solve the current storm and the problems that follow on its heels, trusting our intellect, our strength, our ability to work harder and longer, if that's where we turn, then these truths, which God's Word proclaims to us so clearly, are just theological principles to us. Brothers and sisters, nothing should be more dear to us than this knowledge. That the God who made all things and who sustains all things does it for you. The one who spoke the world into existence and has kept it spinning ever since sees you. Those of you who had the best dads, who paid great attention to you, whose eyes were on you when you were happy and when you were sad, they point you to the one who is perfect in those attributes, who never can fail you because he sees you perfectly well. And more than that, not only can he seize you, he delights in watching over you. You know what it's like whenever you have children and you're super tired and they come to you about 9.30 when they should have been in bed at 8.30 and they have a need. Usually it's a desperate need for a drink because somehow they've become dehydrated within an hour or their stuffed animal has fallen behind the bed or whatever the case may be. The last thing you want to do often in those moments when you finally had a chance to kind of collapse and brace yourself for the incessant coming of another day where they have more and more thousands of needs is to get up and help them find little scruffy or whatever the name of their stuffed animal is or get them the drink that they so desperately ask for. But you do it even if begrudgingly because you know that they need it. And those children learn over time when they're little to trust you as a good mommy or a good daddy. And if you have time to reflect back upon your selfishness that reflexively comes out in the moment, you repent of it because they are your good gift and you delight in them. You delight in watching over them. How much more? This kind of language needs to get into your heart. How much more does your perfect father, who never begrudges giving you the gifts that you need, who is never tired, never irritated, never controlled by selfishness, delight in watching over you. And that is critical, brothers and sisters, because life is long and life is hard. But his watch care, his delightful watch care is over you all the time. You might think that the strong floods mentioned here, the mighty seas mentioned in verse 4, are outside of his control and somehow he has to come in in a reactionary manner 
and, and counteract the effects of such storms. But that's not true. Because verse 1 tells us that the world is established and will never be moved. We know in the New Testament from Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 that, that Jesus himself was the agent of creation and sustains all things. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. That means that the storms that come, the mighty waters which might seem to overwhelm you and, and or take you, are not outside of his control, but he has actually designed them in their flowing and in their ebbing. When they are calm and placid, and when the breakers roar and shake your hearts, they are not outside of his control. He sends them that way to teach us that though life is fragile, and though often it feels like we are dangling over the deep, treacherous, scary ocean by a thread, that he sees us and he is in control. I said to you earlier that it should become true over time that reflexively we turn to these thoughts when the storms come. Israel knew what it was like to have mighty waters around them. Their western border being bounded by the Mediterranean Sea and having a couple of smaller bodies of water within their borders, especially up in the northern portion of the country in the Sea of Galilee. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Mark chapter 4. Though the Sea of Galilee was not a large body of water compared to others, even in the surrounding region, it often had violent storms that would be kicked up. Jesus was from the northern portion of Israel and spent a good amount of time ministering up there. This is a time, a story, when they were ministering in that region and he spent time with his disciples. So he's been teaching in the earlier portion of this chapter and we come to verse 35. On that day, after teaching... When evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They were filled with great fear, or awe, and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? John Mark, who wrote this down under the influence probably of Peter, perhaps Paul, to some degree, had decades to reflect back on this story. And I wonder if they connected these truths that in the beginning of all things, God made the heavens and the earth. And initially, the waters covered the earth. There was no controlling them. They were mighty. But God, with but a breath, brought the land 
and spoke a division into place that the waters, though mighty, would not cross. God tamed the waters, so to speak. Later on in Genesis chapter 6, when the world became so pervasively wicked, God cleansed the earth with a mighty flood, putting down evil and showing his judging power. But the waters receded at his command, bringing life and beauty and order once again. The flood is a reminder that God can decreate when he wants and then recreate at his own delight. When Israel left Egypt, Pharaoh's army, with great pride and anger, pursued them and backed them up against the Red Sea and would slaughter them. But God parted the waters, allowing Israel to walk through them, the waves towering on either side, threatening to crush them, but they could not because God held them at bay. And after having crossed, crashed them down thunderously in judgment upon Pharaoh's army, swallowing them in an instant. When Jesus calms the storm here in Mark 4, it makes perfect sense. Because that's what he did in the first place. Jesus, for all of human history, has been calming storms, taming waters. It's interesting at the end of Revelation that it says that there is no sea. I don't know if that's literal or metaphorical. I hope it's metaphorical because I love the ocean. Assuming it's metaphorical for just a moment, there's a purpose to that. The purpose, seemingly, is that the sea is untamable. Only God can do that, and it can be really scary. I remember several years ago, we were uh, on the coast of South Carolina at our favorite beach. And it was the culmination of the hardest season of my life. We had gone through three years or so of, of really steep trials, things that cost us a whole lot. Uh, family struggles and, and friend struggles, uh, deep loss. And I remember the, the first or second, I think it was the second night we were there, I was reading through Mark's gospel at that point in just my private study. And I came to chapter 4. Uh, Whitney had gone to bed relatively early, which is her custom, and my boys were super young at that point and had gone to bed early as well. So I was up in the family room area reading Mark 4. And I came to the story and just broke emotionally because I felt very out of control. I was very scared at that point of my life, um, considered quitting this job. And I remember walking down to the ocean that it was very dark. Um, the, the sky was overcast. And I walked beside the ocean for a long time. And um, I remember putting together what I had just read with the crashing of the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, to my, to my side. And I will never forget that moment when God united truth and experience. And he took the truth of his word that though the oceans seemed scary, uncontrollable, untamable, that my Lord Jesus, who laid down his life for me, was keeping me and protecting me. And though I felt insecure, 
though I was scared to death, though I did not know the way ahead, though I feared drowning, I believed that he had me and he would not let me go. And he taught me in that moment several years ago that he made everything and rules over everything, but he's also in control of everything, even the hard stuff. If you're not facing hard stuff today, buckle up and wait, because it's coming. If your marriage is really great right now, if your children are doing well, if the job is good, the finances are flowing as you'd like, I'm happy for you. I delight with you. It's great. But you know from experience, if you've been a grown-up very long, that, that's, that hard stuff's coming. If all those things and more are not going well for you today, if you're wondering the way ahead, if you feel like you're bobbing up and down in the ocean, barely able to tread water, wondering whenever you will take your last breath of oxygen and sink plummeting to the depths of the seas, he's got you then too. On the bright days, he's in control. On the stormy days, which by the way he brought and controls, he's got you then And wouldn't we say, though this might seem a little cliched, that if it weren't for the storms, the waters which would seem to overtake us, that we wouldn't really trust him and we wouldn't really know him? We would believe the fundamental lie that we don't need him. But God in his goodness brings the storms and in the storms is very near. And so I say to you, that this principle that God is sovereign over all, it's not just for abstraction. It's not just to tuck away theologically. I want us as a people to get to the point that reflexively that's where we turn. That when the storms come reflexively, we don't turn inward, gazing at ourselves, calculating strength and resources, but instead even through the tears, even through the brokenness, even through the inevitable fear that our eyes turn upward and we say to him, I don't see it, I don't get it, I don't know why you're doing this, I don't know when it will end. I long for the storms to be over, but I believe that you've always had your people, you've always had me, and you won't fail me now. Come through for me. And therefore, brothers and sisters, Psalm 93 can turn into a prayer. You, Lord, who reigns over all in majesty and strength, you, Lord, who made the world and everything in it, including me, you who are king over all, I am in the flood. They are roaring around me. The thunderous waters are scaring me to death. They are mightier than me. But, Lord, you are on high, and you are the majestic Lord of all, and you're my Father. So come through for me, and while I wait, sustain my heart. That's how you pray this back to God. How do we respond to all this? Well, verse 5 tells us he can be trusted to keep his word, and that should affect the way that we live. Psalm 119, verses 49 through 50, says to us, Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Psalm 93, verse 5 says to us, your decrees are very trustworthy. The things that you have said and the things that result because of what you have said, it will always come to pass. 
Even the strongest of our fathers couldn't control the world around them. When God speaks something into existence, when He makes a plan, when His will is imposed, it will come to pass. Verses 1-4 through declare to us that God is in control of all things, even the storms, but His eye is on us. And Jesus' actions in Mark 4 and elsewhere proclaim to us that the Savior is the King of creation, and He's watching over us and cares for us, and that should affect our hearts, so that when we see His Word, reading it, meditating on it, and trusting it, it will come to pass. And then our hearts respond with the end of the verse, Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. That is to say, we are His people. We are to be faithful to Him, living for His glory. His house is where He dwells among His people. The idea here is that relationally, as He takes care of us, we respond in covenant faithfulness back to Him. He will forever be faithful to us, and by His grace, we are to be faithful back to Him. This is what Paul, I think, means in Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, after the first 11 chapters of Romans, where he proclaims to us the sovereign love of God for his people. I appeal to you, therefore, based upon everything I've said about God's love for you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, which trusts itself. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, which is why we read and study the word of God so deeply, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The basic idea of these verses are that God is in control of all things, especially our salvation. And as a result of that, in trust, we respond to him with holy living, living for his glory. And so I say to you, Psalm 93 is more than just abstract truth, but it's for our hearts. Your Lord, your Father, created and rules over all, over ISIS, over Hillary Clinton, over Donald Trump, over your kids, over your spouse, over your boss, over your disease over everything. And more than this, he's in control of every storm we face and can be trusted to calm it in due time and to sustain us while the waves roar. And because of all this, because his decrees will always come to pass, he can be trusted. God always keeps his promises. The greatest promise is that he's given us Christ. He promised Christ to Adam and Eve in the garden after they turned inward, where they ceased to trust him. And over the millennia, little by little, finally in great culmination, when Jesus took on flesh, brought his promises to pass. And will bring them to culmination when Jesus refashions the earth and brings our trembling hearts to full trust in him. Perfect worship. He has always kept his promises, and he always will. 
and for his glory and for his joy, for our joy, may we respond in covenantal faithfulness back to him in full dependence on his sovereign care. Brothers and sisters, may we learn reflexively in the good times and the bad to trust our sovereign Lord. This is more than just truth for our heads. It is for our hearts to sustain us. Your God, your Father, is in control of everything, including you, and you can rest in this. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray now.